Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the show that helps you reach your full potential with your host, Lisa Tarmati, brought to you by lisatarmati.com. Everyone, welcome back to Pushing the Limits. Lisa Tarmati, your host here today. Um, Really excited for this interview. I think uh, you're going to get a heck of a lot out of it. I have Dr. Dom Diagostino with me, and Dr. Dom is a a PhD in neuroscience and physiology, but he's an expert in everything hyperbaric oxygen therapy, um, deep sea diving. Uh, He is an expert in ketones, the keto diet and its use, therapeutic uses, um, especially for cancer, uh, also for things like epilepsy, um, and it's a really fascinating deep dive into the, his knowledge today. Uh, it does get a little bit technical. I apologize for that in places, but if you listen a couple of times, you'll probably um, be able to work out what we're talking about. It is very, very exciting information. As someone who is going through a journey of cancer with a loved one, with my mum, um, his work has been a guiding light for me um, and understanding ketosis and ketones and what they do in the body and how they can protect uh, the normal cells, your brain cells, and uh, give you good fuels and help you get rid of those horrible cancer cells, um, putting it very, very simply. And we go into a deep dive in that in this conversation, so I hope you enjoy it. Before we head over to Dr. Dom, though, just a reminder to check out our epigenetics program. This is a like getting a user manual for your body. It's a very practical program that we have that looks at your genetics and how to optimize those genes to, to the best effect. So helping you understand your food, your exercise, what to do when, what to eat and when, how often. Um, You'll understand everything about your personality and how you tick, how your mind works and different neurotransmitters and hormones that are at play. There's just so many fascinating areas of this program. So whether you're dealing with a health problem or you're just wanting to optimize performance or you're wanting anti-aging and longevity benefits, then this is a really fantastic program for you. Head over to lisatarmity.com and hit the work with us button and you'll see that there. Just want to also remind you we have our patron program. Uh, If you like the content that we put out on here on Pushing the Limits, we'd really be grateful for your support if you would join our VIP tribe and become a patron of this uh, podcast so that we can keep making all this great content and getting world-leading experts information to you. Um, If you want to reach out to me, you can do so, support at lisatarmody.com if you've got any questions about the podcast as well or any of the guests uh, or any topics, then uh, we would love to chat with you there. We also have our running coaching programs. Make sure you check out that if you're uh, aiming to do a big running race this year or you're just wanting to get started with running or you're doing your 100th ultramarathon on whatever level you're at, uh, we would love to help you there, runninghotcoaching.com. Right, now over to the show with Dr. Dom Agostino. Well, hey everyone, welcome back to Pushing the Limits this week. Today I have a superstar in the world of science uh, and an absolute amazing athlete and person and researcher, uh, Dr. Dom Agostino, with me. Welcome to the show, Dr. Dom. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. It's just absolutely so excited. I'm sort of jumping out of my skin uh, for the last few days, just 
preparing for this interview and, and really excited to dive into your research. Um, um, Dr. Dom, can you give the listeners a little bit of a background? You're very well known in, in science, uh, you know, areas, but um, for those who don't know you, can you give them a little bit of a background in, in what you, you studied and what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I majored in nutrition science as an undergrad and uh, in biology. And when I went to do went went into grad school for my PhD, I became very interested in neuroscience. Uh, the '90s were the decade of the brain, so uh, I became very interested in neuroscience. And I applied to a physiology and neuroscience program where I studied the the neural control of our physiology, specifically the neural control of autonomic regulation, so mm -hmm. breathing, so respiratory control, and also cardiovascular control, how the brain controls that. And uh, I did uh, electrophysiology to understand how the neurons communicate and transduce the signal that's associated with uh, cells in our brain can detect levels of carbon dioxide and oxygen, and I studied those mechanisms. And that led me to um, sort of to different people who are interested in diving research. So long story short, uh, my, my career path took uh, the direction of understanding diving physiology and hyperbaric technologies. So I developed the various hyperbaric technologies like microscopes inside chambers, and this was uh, funded by the Navy and Department of Defense. And I've been doing that now for uh, at least 15 years. Wow. So developing different hyperbaric technologies, but also uh, developing nutritional and supplemental therapies and strategies that can protect people under very high hyperbaric conditions like hyperbaric oxygen. We study uh, nitrogen narcosis, high pressure nervous syndrome, decompression sickness, all these things. So developing hyperbaric chambers and different technologies inside them and ways that we can enhance our resilience in those environments. Absolutely amazing. And you've also gone heavily into the ketone research and, and ketones and the keto diet and the keto uh, supplementation and uh, so a lot of work around cancer, which, you know, I'm really keen to, to dive into that too for, for obvious reasons. I've got a mum dealing with uh, lymphoma. Um, so that work is, and she is on exogenous ketones and she's doing the keto diet and, and all of that. So I'm really fascinated. But first, yeah, the hyperbaric and the diving, now you've got a really interesting sort of background in that. I'm very fascinated with hyperbaric as well because um, of my story with my mum who had a massive aneurysm for those listening um, six years ago and was left with huge amounts of brain damage at the age of 74 and a medical prognosis, you know, the doctor's saying, look, she'll never have any quality of life again. She couldn't even put food in her mouth or chew or swallow or, you know, she was basically like a baby. Um, and hyperbaric turned out to be an, uh, a real key factor 
wasn't the only thing because the multiple, you know, multifaceted approach that I took to it, but it was a key factor in her recovery. Um, so it's an end of one, but I am very much aware of how powerful um, hyperbaric oxygen therapy is for so many things. Um, so can you give me a, what I found like really interesting was that you, you know, the atomic force microscopic. Uh, my crossbow that you did uh, inside the chambers to see what's actually happening on the cells and lots of other fancy sort of science equipment that I can't even pronounce. Um, can you explain a little bit of that journey? Because that sounded quite fascinating to be able to actually see what's happening in these high pressures. Yeah, yeah, glad, glad to touch on that. Uh, so I, I did my, my postdoctoral fellowship in a lab that was directed by an individual that developed uh, electrophysiology inside hyperbaric chambers. So we can directly measure neurons, which are brain cells, and how the neurons respond uh, in response to graded levels of oxygen. Oxygen is a stimulant to the brain. And if we get too high, it can actually trigger a seizure. Mm. So we are trying to understand uh, this is beyond the level of hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And for, you know, it's a stimulant. And I think in that way, it actually provides a therapeutic effect, you know, and that, that's another thing that we could discuss. But, uh, but we didn't know fundamentally what's happening at the level of the mitochondria and also the level of the plasma membrane where a lot of the activity takes place as, as far as controlling the, the cellular response, the excitability of the cells really happens at the membrane level. Mm-hmm. So the technologies allowed us to basically, you know, measure with a high degree of resolution mitochondrial reactive oxygen species, superoxide dismutase mm-hmm. uh, controls the redox state. So I measured superoxide anion, which is produced mostly at the level of the mitochondria. So developed a technique where I could measure mitochondrial oxidative reactive oxygen species in response to different levels of pressure and published some of that work uh, in uh, the hippocampus, which is an area of the brain that controls learning and memory, but also dissociated neurons and uh, sort of long story short, it's like we developed a lot of these technologies, including confocal microscopy, atomic mm-hmm. force microscopy, and it led me into the direction of controlling the metabolic state of the cell to make the cells more resilient to these extreme environments of high pressure and high oxygen. And I was I was mostly focused on on drugs, different drugs that could enhance, you know, yep. uh, our resilience. And I, I looked at lactate, I looked at different levels of glucose. And then I, as a side project, I started looking at ketones and I quickly observed that the undergraded levels of ketones that we could elevate in our body with a ketogenic diet or supplements that the neurons were much more resilient. They produced far less reactive oxygen species. So there was less oxidative stress. Mm -hmm. And they could maintain their resting membrane potential. Uh, So uh, neurons are like little batteries and they have an electrical charge and they communicate with one another through action potentials Mm -hmm. and and synapses. And um, under high levels of oxygen, that breaks down and they become depolarized and they dump out glutamate and it becomes excitotoxic. 
I, I became very interested in basically uh, developing a ketogenic strategy that yeah. could make the brain more resilient to these uh, undersea hyperbaric conditions. And the Navy became, well, at first, they were not very interested in ketones. Mm -hmm. But uh, as we developed some data, and there was very strong clinical uh, evidence that the ketogenic diet works for a wide variety of different seizure disorders, mm -hmm. and it's neuroprotective in many ways. Wow. So uh, over the course of writing several different grant proposals, uh, <laughs> we, we got a project funded, uh, maybe 2008 or nine, and then I, I dove into uh, ketogenic research, you know, Literally. basically... <laughs> Yeah, developing the diet and then later ketone esters and then ketone salts and different formulations of ketones that could be neuroprotective. Wow. So um, what you were studying originally was, you know, um, so working with uh, Navy SEAL divers, I believe, and, and, and divers who are having to do um, sort of on rebreathers um, so that they don't give yeah. away their, their location and having difficulties yeah. with CNS toxicity and having seizures. Is that correct? Um, and yeah, that's, that's where your, your, your research started and you're realizing that the ketones, if the guys were on ketones, that they were actually protected from having these seizures. Um, and I, uh, one of your studies you did with mice or something in the hyperbaric on ketones and found that they had a, like, a, I think it was a 600% more, they could take, you know, 600% longer before they had a seizure, which, you know, for, for these divers must be, uh, you know, well, life-saving if they're in sort of dire situations, um, if they're on a keto ketone-based diet. Um, so that was your initial sort of foray into it. So how did that help? So the, the 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 navy was really interested in that, obviously, but this is like spread out from there. It's gone to much more than just dealing with seizures. So this is also for people with epilepsy, um, other types of seizures that are drug resistant if they're on the ketone diet keto diet that they can actually you know get control over their seizures is that right yeah that's right uh it's a hundred year anniversary this year for the ketogenic diet being used clinically oh, wow. uh, originally developed in the mayo clinic and later used at johns hopkins and now there's you know 200 clinics just in the united states that uh, use the ketogenic diet in a comprehensive program with a neurologist. So it's been around, it was the standard of care, for example, back in the 1920s, 30s, up into right. the 50s, and then different drugs were developed, and the drugs largely replaced the ketogenic diet as mm -hmm. the standard. But then the drugs never really provided, there's always about a third of the patients who just do not respond to drug therapy. And of course, they come with their own problems, uh, they have side effects. So the ketogenic diet, it didn't, it stayed as a standard of care, but it, it, it remains a standard of care for drug-resistant or drug-refractory epilepsy. Right. So uh, some advocates, you know, uh, are pushing to make it, you know, a frontline approach for those who are willing and able to implement it in children. Mm -hmm. And uh, because some of the anti-epileptic drugs if they are given to kids, they can cause developmental delays. Wow. Whereas if you yeah. administer a ketogenic diet, it actually enhances learning and memory. <laughs> so you have <laughs> two options. You have two anti-seizure, uh, anti-convulsant strategies. One can delay development and learning and cognition, and one can enhance it. 
So I, so that's important. And then later the the uh, ketogenic diet was used in adults, and now there's modified forms of the ketogenic diet, including the modif- yeah the modified Atkins diet or MAD, which was developed by Dr. Eric Kossoff at Johns Hopkins, and that's a higher protein diet. So instead of like uh, 12 to 15 percent protein, it's upwards of 20 to 25 percent protein. That actually makes it quite more uh, easily oh, to terrible. implement. Yeah, and 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 compliance is is quite higher. Um, so the ketogenic diet has evolved and, you know, in early studies, it was all about macros, you know, just, yeah. just get this amount of fat. But now we appreciate and some of the formulas that pharmaceutical companies made were basically hydrogenated fats and casein. Yeah. And that Not made good. up like the whole and then they put in some powdered vitamins in it or whatever. Now we understand that things like uh, EPA or DHA, docosahexaenoic acid, mm-hmm. uh, different types of protein are superior. You know, the, the fats are, are really important, not just the quantity, but the uh, not just the macronutrient Top. ratios, but also the types of fats yeah. and things like that. So uh, medium chain triglycerides have anti-seizure mm-hmm. effects in and of themselves. Uh, decanoic acid, there's like, you know, patents on that as a drug wow. companies, but you could just get it. You can just go to the uh, nutrition store and get, yeah. get some MCT. MCT. So uh, it, if you look at Google trends for searches, it's, and, you know, research on it, it has exploded. If you look at PubMed and if you look at, so Google, PubMed, and clinicaltrials.gov, there's an exponential surge in uh, different applications of the ketogenic diet, mm-hmm. uh, basic science research, and now clinical research, wow. which is very exciting to be someone who is like came in just when it was not really recognized. I feel like I kind of got in early, although it's been you know used for 100 years. Uh, and a lot of this explosion of the ketogenic diet research actually happened in the late 1990s with Jim Abrams of the Charlie Foundation. And he became a vocal advocate on the show called Dateline NBC. Mm-hmm. And he is a Hollywood producer. He made the movie Airplane, Naked Gun. And, you know, he's uh, a very uh, established and successful movie producer. And I had the opportunity to meet him. And I've done some sort of educational outreach things for the Charlie Foundation included them in my TEDx talk that I gave years mm-hmm. ago. Uh, and it was the story of Charlie Abrams that really, really nudged me to go in this direction because um, I met with a neurologist and they said, the ketogenic diet tends to work for all sorts of, of seizure disorders. And oxygen toxicity is a very unique seizure disorder. And come to find out, it's, it seems to be very effective for that. So we have you know, ongoing uh, basic science research and clinical research. And the guys, you know, report back to me, they're using out in the field, but the Navy is very risk averse. So they're continuing to do more studies uh, because they like the idea of the ketogenic diet in a pill. So we're evaluating different types of exogenous ketones and dosing strategies to, and to determine the optimal ketogenic approach that will block oxygen seizures, but also enhance cognitive and physical performance. So they want to, you know, check all boxes on this. So we're, we're in the process working with Duke to optimize it. 
Yep. Wow. And and this is and this has also led then um because the keto diet and I think um we probably need to define, you know, what the pure keto diet is and then, you know, yeah. you said the modified because a lot of, you know, mates at the gym and, and stuff they're oh yeah, I'm doing the keto diet and I'm, you know, looking at the, the, the what they're eating and I'm going, Yeah, that, that's not quite the what the the pure keto diet is and it's been popularized in certain you know directions can you sort of clear up for people what exactly would be a really uh classic you know keto diet and what would be an actual therapeutic sort of a, a keto diet uh, and start from there i think that would be a good thing to clarify so that we know we're all talking about the same thing like you mentioned how much protein before um but you know what would be a, like you're 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 often in ketosis you're doing a keto diet uh, i believe often you know in a cyclic fashion actually we should talk on the cyclicness of of doing keto is that more beneficial cyclicness i don't think that's a word but uh you know what I mean? Um, so is it is something you go into and stay into for the rest of your life or is it something that you should go in and out of or um, and what is the keto diet? Yeah, all very good questions. It's really context dependent. So if you are using it to metabolically manage uh, a seizure disorder, a neurological disorder or cancer uh, which the research is ongoing on that. And, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of different metabolic disorders like glucose transporter type 1 deficiency syndrome, mm. pyruvate dehydrogen. So they go by these very long names and yep. they're like inborn errors of metabolism. And the standard of care is the ketogenic diet. So in that, in that context, the ketogenic diet needs to be implemented continuously. And it actually is life-saving right. in the context yep. of, of different if someone is using the ketogenic diet, say, for glycemic control, which I wear a continuous glucose monitor that mm -hmm. I showed you here, yeah, uh, it keeps your glucose and insulin very low. And uh, I'm using an app called Levels Health, and mm -hmm. that'll do like the data analytics on the data. And it shows the very, very tight glycemic control. So your glycemic, your glucose levels throughout the day your pattern of glucose and insulin look completely different than if you're eating a standard American diet where you're yep. having spikes yep. all the time. It is, it is likely, well, we know for sure that if you are type 2 diabetic and your glucose runs high, those spikes are basically taking years off of your life and exactly. they're you know, they're impairing your brain function. They're making you more susceptible to cancer, inflammation. So we believe, and we're doing a, a study, a clinical trial right now, that it's important to get ahead of the problem. So, yes. you know, w when you have diabetes, it's like you measure 126 milligrams per deciliter, then you have diabetes. So it's, it's the medical establishment does not really appreciate that it goes on a spectrum, yep. right? So and it's happening over a while. Everybody in your family, <laughs> yeah, has diabetes when they're like 40s or 50s. It makes sense to get ahead. You could pay a little bit now and get a, a glucose monitor and get ahead of the problem, or you can pay a lot more later on all the medication and all the comorbidities putting you in the hospital. Yep. So tell me about it. it. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah we, I mean, mom. I know you know this stuff. It's like preaching to the choir. Yeah. But, uh, but we believe that the medical establishment and insurance agencies 
there's nobody does inf- nobody does research on prevention. So yeah. we believe that it's very important if you're pre-diabetic to get different wearable technologies that will tell you and coach you how to eat so you don't become diabetic. So we're doing some research with Levels Health on that now. And I'm using the Dexcom G6. I use the Abbott Precision Libre. They're all good devices. Yep. I don't stand behind any one uh, technology. They're all the commercially available ones are, are pretty good. Um, you know, but, when you, uh, they, sorry, don't, yeah. you know, like when you, when you talk to a doctor about, you know, um, uh, I had a case where I was helping a, a young girl who'd had a massive brain injury and I wanted you to get a glucose monitor so that she could just check that, you know, she's not got problems with uh, uh, her glucose control when, when you've had a brain injury the chemist was like, why does she need that for? You know, go to your doctor if you want to measure your blood sugars once every year. I was like, uh, <laughs> this could be really, very preventative, you know, and, and, you know, she ended up in hospital yeah. as a three-year-old with, you know, blood sugar levels down at 2.2, you know, um, because they weren't monitoring it. Um, and, and, you know, she came right eventually, but, you know, it just shows like, Again and again and again, every time I have an interaction with hospitals or or the medical system, it's always um, after the horse is bolted instead of, hey, how can we prevent some of this from happening? We can't prevent everything, but we can prevent a heck of a lot from happening and make sure that, you know, and blood sugar control is one of the the gateway. I mean, diabetes is the gateway to you know, every every other problem basically, isn't it? You know, whether it's Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, cancers, they are all, if you have dysregulated blood sugars, you're going to have problems in these areas. So, you know, it's, it, it would make sense uh, to be in that prevention space, which is what I preach about all the time. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah. and so the ketone diet and doing this to, you know, sorry to interrupt you there, but um, is really a good way to do this, to be in that preventative space. It's one approach that is very efficacious and very successful at controlling your glucose and insulin. And hyperinsulinemia is kind of like the canary in the coal mine, so to speak, for type 2 diabetes. So if we could also measure... So if just measuring your blood glucose at a single time point is not super informative. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a little bit, but what's more informative is actually understanding the dynamics of how the glucose is changing over time in real time, uh, you get much, much more information uh, from the postprandial rise. And it's like if you're trying to understand, uh, you know, a, a cheetah, an animal, you could look at a picture of it running or you can watch a video of it running. Yeah, and exactly. the video is giving you so much more information. And then you can take that video and analyze many, you can analyze the complexity analysis of the CGM curve and do all sorts of of, um, analysis. And also, if you have other biomarkers that are measured in tandem, you can collect that data and then correlate it with changes in inflammatory markers and insulin and hemoglobin A1C, um, you know, and triglycerides and things like that. So that's what we're doing with the the current study. And, um, you know, so we think, and it's not, it's a ketogenic diet and also a low carb diet. We have two different tracks. Like if Mm -hmm. someone really needs to get under control, then we go to a ketogenic diet, which comes back to your original question. Sorry, I didn't get right to it. But uh, a ketogenic diet is defined by, uh, it's the only diet that's defined by the elevation of a biomarker. And that's Mm -hmm. breath, 
blood or urine ketones. Mm -hmm. So I have different, you know, I have a Biosense breath ketone meter, which Mm -hmm. works great. And breath ketones correlate with fat oxidation and breath ketones also correlate very nicely with seizure control. So it's a good and non-invasive. You can puff into it hundreds, if not thousands of times, and you don't have to buy the strips. You don't have to... And it's like a class two FDA approved device now. Well, wow. the Biosense devices, uh, not all of them, but that one is. And then urine ketones are okay to just tell you if you are or not in, in the state of ketosis. And then from there, you know, you can do blood measurements to get a higher resolution on your ketones or breath measurements, uh, which I recommend. And uh, so the ketogenic diet is defined, the classical ketogenic diet is defined as a four to one and four being four parts fat and then one part uh, combination of protein and carbohydrates, Mm -hmm. carbohydrates being very low. What that translates to is uh, a level of fat that's about 88 to to almost 90% fat and, you know, just 10%, eight to 10% protein and and just a little bit of fibrous carbohydrates, you know, would be allowed, but very, very minimal, like 10 grams of carbs. So that diet is like the diet that they use for pediatric epilepsy, but we're beginning to understand that it does not have to be as strict as we once thought. Uh, but you do get higher ketone levels with this super high fat, you know, ketogenic diet. And sometimes that's the first line of approach. And then we can transition into a more liberal modified ketogenic diet with time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so there's like the, the four to one, the three to one, the two, 2.5 to one, and even the one to one. And then there's the low glycemic index diet, which is low carb, but it's not ketogenic. In some cases that can actually control some forms of, of seizures, which suggests that, that the elevation of ketones are not necessarily the, um, necessary, but reducing sugar metabolism seems to be. But if your ketones are elevated, that's when you get maximum seizure control. And we also understand now that the ketones are anti-inflammatory, they're neuroprotective, they have epigenetic effects to one of my students is just looking at epigenetic regulation of ketones. So they have very interesting signaling properties in addition to functioning as an alternative energy for your brain. So when you so if, if we can um, pivot now into the cancer side of 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 this research, um, it's it, it really um, I've been in a deep dive into cancer, and I really wasn't too much into that before. Um, so you know, forgive me if I get a, a few things wrong, but I've been looking at the metabolic approach to cancer. For a starters, there's a lady named Jane McClellan. I don't know if you know her. She is the author of How to Starve Cancer. Amazing lady, actually. Incredible person who survived, you know, uh, three times uh, terminal cancer and worked stuff out for herself. And her 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 metro map that she has with the different pathways um, and and cutting down the um, the glycolytic pathways and the oxfos and the there's about 20 different pathways that are that are that we can start to target and then I, I came across your work and then I was because I was like at the beginning when I first uh, realized that mum had probable cancer I didn't have a diagnosis but I knew she had a tumor I just went right you're only on veggies because I don't know what the heck else you can eat right now because I don't want to feed this 
this tumor and I knew that sugar and the, the I'd read the book you know the metabolic approach to cancer and a, a couple of other books so I knew that there was that factor in it but it's much more than just uh, the sugar it's um it, it, it you know cancer can can shift its it's very metabolically flexible. So you take away its sugar, it'll go to glutamine, it'll go to fatty acids, it'll 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 shift. So I was unsure at the beginning until I came across your work where the ketones would be safe for her to take. Those are exogenous ketones and the keto diet um, and the fats. Also, I was um, so for for the first six six weeks, basically she was on veggies. <laughs> that was it, and now she's on um, exogenous ketones since I've studied your work and um, the good, you know, good good fats. Um, and I've noticed just in the in the short time that we've actually done the keto diet as opposed to just vegetables um, that her her brain function has improved and she's just had brain surgery so she's just had a tumor removed uh so she was very quick to bounce back um and she's much sharper now than before when she had the tumor obvious for obvious reasons the tumor was causing inflammation but the but the comeback has been quite incredible um so I, i'm seeing on a day-to-day basis the effects of this, you know, being in ketosis. And she's got the the ratio, usually I can get, she's about the one to two ratio um, that I heard you speak about on Peter Atia's show, um, where, so she's, uh, when I measure her blood sugars, so usually, um, uh, which way around is it? The ketones are around two to three, usually, and her blood sugars are around the, the five, four to five uh, sort of mark. Um, and I'd like to get that, ratio a little bit better but she seems to be really responding well to that why is this important for cancer people who have cancer and this is we probably should explain the warburg effect can you explain what the warburg effect is and then why you know cutting out sugar and 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 high carbs is really important i've sort of gone around the mulberry bush there but yeah maybe if we start with the warburg effect yeah, I'm going to give like a little bit of a background on how I got into cancer and yes, because uh, brain tumors can cause seizures and and I was wondering, you know, I had been in contact with people who had brain tumors and were having seizures and I was like, well, I'm studying the ketogenic diet for seizures, maybe and they were on very high doses of anti-epileptic drugs and those drugs are causing a lot of side effects. Mm. So I was thinking, okay, okay, well, is the ketogenic diet safe for someone who has a brain tumor? And then I came across um, a 2007 paper, I believe, from Thomas Seyfried, Mm -hmm. and then uh, a paper by a Skinner uh, Mm -hmm. from University of Florida, where they directly applied ketones. Thomas Seyfried used an animal model uh, of, of brain tumors, and it was working, and then Then I saw a study that directly applied ketones to uh, uh, neurons that were uh, transformed into cancer cells, and they had an anti-cancer effect, uh, and these particular cancer cells could not survive if you took away glucose and gave them ketones, all the cancer cells essentially died, but healthy, healthy neurons would survive if you, you know, restricted or eliminated glucose from the petri dish media and then supplied ketones, the healthy cells could survive, but the cancer cells would die. So this, this was very interesting to me. I, I didn't really understand why. 
And then I, uh, you know, I studied metabolism through my PhD and even through my undergrad, but I, I had never heard of the Warburg effect. And, uh, and it wasn't really talked about in the biology of cancer, which is a textbook that, that, uh, uh, yeah. that <laughs> college from. students use. And there's a reason for that. Actually, there's sort of political, academic, you know, reasons that this was not really discussed. It went into the direction of really the the Cancer Genome Project and things like yeah. that. It's another story. Politics. But uh, Thomas Christ, <laughs> um, Travis Christopherson wrote about this in the book. Um, oh, tripping over uh, the truth. Yeah, yeah, tripping over the truth, and he's got another book out, Curable. Uh-huh. But uh, but the Warburg effect is essentially. Uh, the observation that there's damaged respiration and respiration in this context is mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation, which is uh, the large majority of, of ATP production, about 80 to 90% of ATP per production in healthy cells is through the mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this is damaged, uh, we think, and well, the Warburg uh, effect is basically saying that that's damaged, and then there's compensatory fermentation, that's which right. is sugar yeah. metabolism to make energy. Yeah. So Warburg hypothesized that the cells were producing, were fermenting because the mitochondria were damaged, and they were defaulting to a more primitive form of energy production. Uh, so you have damaged a respiration and compensatory fermentation to preserve the bioenergetic state of the cell, the mm-hmm. ATP production. So there's a little bit of, well, there's a lot of contention within the field of cancer yes. uh, biology because some people think the Warburg effect is basically to shuttle uh, nutrients and biomolecules to the expanding biomass of the tumor for anabolic processes, and which it does do that. And, uh, and other people, I mean, it's it's kind of it, the Warburg effect is reverting back to a more primitive form of energy metabolism, mm. but in the in the same process, directing biomolecules to anabolic processes that can allow the cancer cells to grow and divide and expand. And when the important thing is is that when you restrict glucose availability to the cells, and also you lower the hormone insulin, which stimulates glycolysis, these things really marginalize the growth and they impair growth. And when you slow the growth of cancer cells, you can do it to the point where it kicks on something called, you know, autophagy or yeah. you know, programmed cell death. So Energy restriction in cancer cells tends to be fatal to rapidly dividing cancer cells. So that's important. And you can do it with chemotherapy and you can block DNA replication and that can trigger apoptosis or you can do energy restriction, dietary, and you could do star or you could fast, but you yep. can't fast forever, right? Oh, but yeah, the ketogenic the diet... Yep. Yeah, the keto diet mimics the physiological state of fasting. So your body actually... Kind of physiologically, if you were to pull blood from someone who's on a ketogenic diet and look at the hormones, it would be like this person could be on a eucaloric diet, it means that they're getting all the calorie needs. But if you pull blood from them and look at a hormonal profile, you would be kind of hard pressed to distinguish between fasting and the ketogenic diet through, yeah. you know, a metabolomic analysis. So uh, there's very, there's a lot of overlap. So the ketogenic diet is mimicking fasting, and I think that uh, the suppression of the hormone insulin, the reduction in glucose availability, and the elevation of ketones are all contributing to the anti-cancer effect. 
What about the autophagy? Because autophagy, um, and is it the nucleoside salvage pathway and the macropinocytosis pathway that both use, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, um, autophagy. So is a is an, is another form of food that the cancer can can use. So can it like start to, you know, get around this problem once you've been on the keto diet for a while and you're actually causing autophagy, which for for most of us would be a good thing, but can yeah. it actually use that then as a food as well? It's interesting that you bring that up. I don't, I don't think anyone's ever brought that up to me, but I know I've observed that there are pharmaceutical companies that are developing drugs to block autophagy, to stop yeah. autophagy. Wow. Because when, when you stop autophagy, you know, the, the cancer cells will use autophagy as a means to get energy to preserve but my i so and that that does happen you know and some of the drugs that are being tested now the results are not really that compelling if you ask me it's more like a hail mary so when you get to the point of so much energy restriction that you're stimulating autophagy and the dietary the energy restriction induced autophagy, which is enabling the survival of cancer cells. That's a very unique scenario. And it's more like a Hail Mary for the cancer. So it's just um, trying anything. So I do yeah. I do understand the rationale for that, but um but I but I think that so here's how I kind of view it is that cancer cells have a much higher energy demand than normal healthy yeah. cells simply because it, a tumor, if you look at a tumor and do like a thermogram, like there's heat coming from the, from the tumor. There's like, wow. you know, uncoupling proteins are being produced. It's like radiating heat. The energy consumption is high. That contributes to cachexia, yeah. which is also inflammatory cytokines do that and and also the expanding biomass you know is just sucking up more energy just interrupting the program briefly to let you know that we have a new patron program for the podcast now if you enjoy pushing the limits if you get great value out of it we would love you to come and join our patron membership program we've been doing this now for five and a half years and we need your help to keep it on air it's been a public service free for everybody and we want to keep it that way but to do that we need like-minded souls who are on this mission with us to help us out so if you're interested in becoming a patron for pushing the limits podcast then check out everything on patron.lisatarmaty.com that's p-a-t-r-o-n dot lisatarmaty.com we have two patron levels to choose from you can do it for as little as seven dollars a month new zealand or fifteen dollars a month if you really want to support us so we we are grateful if you do there are so many membership benefits you're going to get if you join us everything from workbooks for all the podcasts the strength guide for runners uh, the power to vote on future episodes uh, webinars that we're going to be holding all of my documentaries and much much more so check out all the details patron.lisatarmaty.com and thanks very much for joining us energy restriction becomes toxic to the tumor to where it will slow down. It will stimulate autophagy. And actually, there's a lot of autophagy going on within the tumor. And I noticed this when we were looking at these, uh, these sort of tumors underneath 
uh, a microscope is that there was tons and tons of dead cells that we would stain for dead cells. Wow. And it was interesting to see that, you know, the expanding, you, you have cells that are growing unbridled proliferation, but lots of dead cells within that, that mm. tumor biomass. So uh, just because it's just, you know, by pure, if you make enough cells, <laughs> the tumor gonna... will continue to expand, even if you're but th- with energy restriction, you are you are killing more of those cells and you're slowing the overall tumor growth. So I think this idea of stimulating autophagy, the net result will be highly beneficial for someone who has cancer. There may be different forms of cancer that could sort of capitalize off autophagy, yep. but I, I kind of think it's like a Hail Mary right. sort of scenario. And I do not think that drugs that stop autophagy, unless it's a very, very unique pathway, are going to be clinically uh, significant. I think mechanistically, it's good to tease out to understand the autophagic pathways and the autophagosomes and yeah. and sort of the unique cancer-specific autophagy pathways. I think that's important to understand. And if we could develop, you know, a cancer-specific autophagic inhibitor, you know, that would be that would be great. Could be, but I, I think we're yeah. away a ways away from that. Um, because there's, there's one um, molecule that might, might be interesting for you is called spermidine. Have you heard of spermidine? Mm-hmm. Spermidine yeah, is yeah. actually, um, yeah, which you know, I, I had my mom prior to the cancer I'm taking, really good as an autophagy um, uh, initiator, if you like. Um, yeah, yeah, cancer, I canned it. But I, uh, I, I talked to a couple of doctors and they reckon that they can't, you know, we can't, we're just sort of connecting dots that in the higher doses, when you actually uh, do high-dose spermidine, that that actually could be beneficial, whereas low-dose spermidine may may not be. I mean, we're really getting into the weeds now, but um, <laughs> it's it's an interesting, and there's so many other pathways. But And I was also worried about the, the, the fats and, and ketones in the keto diet, whether that would feed. Um, but you said in your work that these are non-fermentable, the cancer can't use them. And so that sort of gave me the, the, the confidence to to go and put her on exogenous ketones. Um, and I'll give you um, another thing, you, you, your um, press pulse protocol that you've published previously, which was fascinating. And and um, luckily I'm doing a lot of it, right? <laughs> I, I just happened to be doing uh, a lot of it for her brain re- rehabilitation journey. And now I've tripled down on it. So um, that the press uh part of that press pulse protocol for cancer patients. Um, you know, you were talking about hyperbaric oxygen therapy. You're talking about intravenous vitamin C. You're talking about the ketone, uh, uh, ketosis and intermittent fasting and calorie restriction, you know, in there as well, um, all of which we're doing. To give you an example, yesterday I had her on um, a 60-gram dose of vitamin C infusion. Um, she just had uh, exogenous ketones in the morning and her supplements, um, nothing to eat. We went to the gym, trained at the gym. So her glucose levels were probably pretty low. After the 60 grams, and I listened to your lecture afterwards and I thought, ah, I probably sent her glucose to the floor. Um, when she had the 60 grams, which for her, she's 60 kilos. So that's a pretty, you know, pretty high dose vitamin C. Um, she was wasted in the afternoon and I didn't get to do my hyperbaric session with her, which I tried to, you know, couple the, the vitamin C and the hyperbaric close together at least. 
didn't get to do that yesterday because she was just wiped out from the vitamin C. And I think I may have sent her glucose probably through the floor. <laughs> Would that be a good assessment of what I might have done there? <laughs> Without having, I didn't even take a well, blood sugar because so it, it would have been wrong. Yeah. The vitamin C mucks up the blood sugar. If you measure blood sugar. Yeah. Yeah. It, it'll, it'll, uh, the, the glucose monitors detect vitamin C as blood sugar. So it'll yeah. be very high because it's, it's very similar molecule. Uh, vitamin C can function as a glucose antagonist. Yeah. So uh, ascorbic acid sort of uses the same transporter as glucose. And uh, by getting to the supraphysiological levels with the IV vitamin C, you are impairing glucose metabolism in cancer cells. So in that way, uh, you could be blocking you know, glycolysis. That could be beneficial. Very high levels of vitamin C can also function as a pro-oxidant, specifically in cancer cells. Remember I talked about in tumors, you have a lot of cell death that mm -hmm. happens in tumors mm -hmm. too with the expanding biomass. Yeah. As cells die, it releases heme, heme iron, and yeah. heme iron yeah. drives something called the uh, Fenton reaction. Yes. Yeah. And and within within the tumor, uh, if you if in the presence of high vitamin C and and the presence of high cell death, like which would occur in a tumor, you can drive the Fenton reaction, which would then exacerbate and further increase oxidative stress in the tumor. Yep. So that can be uh, and then in that scenario, if you then apply hyperbaric oxygen, which reverses tumor hypoxia and hyperoxygenates the tumor independent of hemoglobin because the oxygen is yes, actually it's being in the plasma. Uh, Solidized. Yeah, so with the threshold component, yeah, the oxygen is independent of hemoglobin. It's getting into the plasma. And if you stick an electrode inside of a tumor, the oxygen goes through the roof. And it's wow. not, it's because the oxygen is dissolved in the plasma. So you have a scenario with vitamin C where you're driving the fentanyl reaction, producing reactive oxygen species, and then you're adding substrate to that reaction, which would be oxygen. Oxygen, uh, oxygen is the precursor to reactive oxygen species. And, and in that context, you can cite specifically, you know, enhance oxidative stress in the tumor in a relatively non-toxic way. Yeah. And this is, you know, this is part of the strategy in addition to various drugs that we're studying like metformin, 2-deoxyglucose, yeah. pyruvate, uh, lonidamine is very interesting. Yeah. 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 So all these things, you know, we're we're working on developing a comprehensive non-toxic therapy that could potentially be used as a standalone or a means to further augment standard of care that could be chemo, radiation, or immune-based therapies. We're working with Moffitt Cancer Center oh, wow. uh, on, on these kinds of projects. And this is the, the, the frustrating thing. You go to your local oncologist and they have no idea of any of this. <laughs> and yeah, it's pretty frustrating. <laughs> um, and because yeah. vitamin C and hyperbaric, um, ozone as well, and UV uh, bladder radiation, they all belong to the oxidative medicine family, don't they? Mm -hmm. um, and, and if we just focus on vitamin C and hyperbaric, so we, we're flooding the body with oxygen basically when we when we do hyperbaric is i have a uh, in the background there i've got my mild hyperbaric chamber <laughs> you see yeah, yeah. um that one goes up to 1.5 atmospheres is that enough for someone with cancer 
well, should I be really trying to get to a place where I can get 2.5 to 3 atmospheres? I heard in one of your lectures about, um, I think it was at 3 to 3.25 atmospheres, uh, the the was it the the lipid peroxidation on the membrane of the mitochondria or something was exploding when you looked through the microscope. Uh, is that did I butcher that or is that right? <laughs> yeah, like you know, under the microscope when we have cancer cells and you increase the oxygen content, you see an exponential rise in reactive oxygen species, and then like the mitochondria start popping essentially they start disappearing underneath the microscope and then wow. the, the cell membrane starts to basically uh, undergo membrane lipid peroxidation, which is like a feed forward process. And then, then the cells disintegrate, they explode. Uh, so the, the level of oxygen that we used in our study was 2.5 atmospheres of oxygen given uh, for 60 minutes, three times per week, yeah. uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, in our animal model. Uh, so the question about lower levels of oxygen achieved in a soft shell chamber. So I, I do believe that it has a therapeutic effect, uh, and it might be good to start with that. And if you tolerate it well, uh, then you know you might have more benefits to moving to a hard shell chamber. We did we did like a pilot study with uh, low le lower levels of oxygen, uh, 1.5, I believe, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we saw trends for reduced tumor, but it was only like the sample. We didn't have enough uh, statistical power to show yep. an effect. It was like only like six mice or something like that. And then I think then we did you know we had done in tandem the uh, the higher dose, and it was like well let's just go with the higher dose because we're seeing a bigger effect. Uh, but this is in mice. It's in a, it's in a, you know, an animal model of metastatic cancer that was very rapidly growing. So that's that's why we chose that. Um, it was a glioblastoma, so wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people ask me about the lower levels of oxygen, and I can't point to a publication that we did, but other labs have looked at lower levels of oxygen and saw an effect. Uh, but. So we, be in and of itself, it. we didn't see an effect. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it probably it's it's and there's other beneficial effects of oxygen, like you know, increased stem cell production, yeah. uh, you know, increased maybe red blood cell production, things like that 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 you can observe. So but and the because this is the, effect Yeah, the, so sorry, the not maximum is is not maximum. So I would be yeah, because this is a, the the question that I had, is that enough, you know? Um uh, and yeah. you probably the answer is better than nothing, but not as good as a 2.5 would yeah. be. So I should, uh, and this is the problem, of course, these are a heck of a lot cheaper to get and get access to than, uh, you know, we've only got a few in the country of actual hard shell hyperbaric chambers. Um, and that makes it much more difficult for people to get. And this combination, is there a necessity for the vitamin C infusion? Like if you're really wanting to maximize your therapeutic potential of this, to be next to your hyperbaric session, you know, like have your vitamin C and then get straight in the hyperbaric chamber, or does that, you know, not is not such an important thing. So, my recommendation: if you get vitamin C immediately before hyperbaric chamber, what sometimes happens logistically is that you need to pee, right? Yeah. So sometimes, like if you get a big load. And uh, so people were 
reporting that to me. And then I went and got IV vitamin C just to see how it was. I don't use it on a regular basis, but uh, I noticed that, you know, uh, it does, it does stimulate that effect. Uh, so I, I think it would be good. I think if they were done on the same day, that yep. would be optimal. If you, if you get hyperbaric oxygen therapy, the PO2 in the tumor gets elevated and stays elevated for about 40, 30 to, to one hour after, believe it or not, the PO2. Right. And then the reactive oxygen species that are generated from the hyperbaric oxygen are likely elevated throughout the day and maybe into the next day. So, you know, you have a burst of oxygen and then reactive oxygen species and then sort of it triggers various cascades. I think if they were both done, you know, as close as possible, but within within the same day. Yep, um, that would be that, that would be enough. that would probably be ideal if you could then, just do it in the same day. Yes. So as part of your press pulse protocol, you so you've got your calories, you've got your ketones, you've got your hyperbaric, you've got your intravenous vitamin C, and this all sensitizes the tumor. You're making it weaker, aren't you? By by essentially doing in in, in doing this, hopefully on an ongoing basis as best as you can. Um, and then you come in with some pulse strategies, which could be anything from the chemo radiation to to what else can we add into that mix? You know, um, supplements. Um, you know, in, anything else that would you, you think would be important to mention if somebody's trying to put? Because the the reality is, Dom, that people that are facing cancer are having to sort of work this stuff out themselves because standard medical care is 20 years behind what's actually happening and this and especially in this the metabolic side of of cancer research is not really getting through so when i said to the oncologist the other day you know do you know anything about the metabolic approach to cancer and he just rolled his eyes at me and went oh one of those you know <laughs> um and that's really frustrating uh as because you're then left and i i know this because i've been you know dealing with health stuff with my mum for six years and with my father and my own my own health journeys that mm -hmm. you better go and find out you better go and find out the the greatest researchers the best scientists the latest information because you very often there's this 20 year time lapse between what's been done in the lab and what's been done in clinic um and it, it, it you know i understand the need for all this uh the rigorous testing and, and so on and so forth. But sometimes when you're in dire situations like we are in, you have to be an experimenter too. You have to chuck everything at, at it um, if you if you want to get anywhere. And it, it, it's um, it's just it's very frustrating to see how slowly things move, and not just in cancer, but in every area um, that I've come across. And because I, you know, get to talk to amazing professors and doctors and scientists at the cutting edge, and a lot of them are frustrated at you know it's not being adopted no. yet. Um, are there any? Is is it different in the states? You know, are you seeing things come through quicker? And what would your advice be? Like, mm -hmm. if you had cancer in your family, somebody was in this dire situation, um, what would you be doing, um, you know, from that sort of perspective without being medical advice and you're not a medical doctor, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, to address the one in the United States, I think we're warming up to the idea that nutrition matters. I don't know why this is not, it should be like the cornerstone of any, you know, of general health, but of, of, 
cancer therapy because nutrition is, is really about the patient's health. And uh, they should not be advised to just eat anything to gain weight. And that's what they are it's, generally told throughout yeah. their protocol, you know. Uh, so uh, luckily, we, we have a very uh, uh, forward thinking, you know, uh, director for the Moffitt Cancer Institute. His name is Patrick. Patrick Hugh. Uh, mm-hmm. he's, he was the former CEO and director, I think, of MD Anderson, and now he's the new director of the Moffitt Cancer Center. He personally does a ketogenic diet, and he's a big fan of fasting and intermittent fasting. So I, I met with him a, a few months ago, and uh, you know he is very educated, and he acknowledges that, can't, that uh, nutrition will play a big role, is opening the doors for us here in Florida to do uh, more nutrition-based cancer research. Also, my collaborator, Dr. Nagi Kumar, is a registered dietitian and a PhD. Uh, She is the chief nutritionist at Moffitt Cancer Center. So a a place that's more cutting edge is going to have more appreciation for targeting cancer metabolism with nutrition just because they have more resources and more experience. The average oncologist, the average doctor does not have a nutritionist on their, you know, within their team that could really advise patients. So you don't, you just want, most importantly, you want to restrict the sugar, optimize glycemic control, suppress the hormone insulin, ideally, you know, do intermittent fasting if you can, but also acknowledge the patient's weight. Mm -hmm. So you could be more aggressive with intermittent fasting and a ketogenic diet if the patient is a little bit heavier and overweight. And you really have to pay attention to protein if you have an underweight patient and make sure their nutritional status is okay, that they're not deficient in things like carnitine or selenium, of course, things like vitamin D and magnesium and things like that. You want to do blood work to show nutritional status is good. And uh, when you go on a ketogenic diet, things like carnitine tend to drop because right. carnitine transports fats into. So we see this a lot in kids. So you got to put them on you know, carnitine supplement oh, wow. and things like that. Uh, although like meat and, and uh, you know, fish and meat and chicken that has carnitine in it, uh, red meat especially. So you want to make sure you're getting optimal nutrition with the least amount of calories. You want enough calories to sustain weight and repair. So foods like, like things that I like are eggs or like an optimal <laughs> nutrition uh, sardines, omega-3s have anti-inflammatory, anti-cachexic effects. Um, and, you know, non-glycemic fibrous carbohydrates, if you're going to incorporate them, uh, healthy fats, steak, chicken, fish, eggs uh, are all great. And uh, if you have carbohydrates, if you get them in the form of like raw vegetables, like salads, yeah, uh, with using liberal amounts of olive oil and uh, nuts are great. If you can tolerate it, uh, dairy is okay in my opinion. Dairy fat, dairy protein can be pop- problematic for yeah. some people, but like dairy fat in the form of like a fermented sour cream or something like that uh, is a good way to get in calories. Um, if if a patient is like losing weight, you can kind of add that in. Is uh, it but it's watching really about all your bloods like, and... KI. Yeah. yeah. Uh, achieving a GKI, which it sounds like you've done with your mom, like under four, ideally mm-hmm. between like one and two, or we say one to four. I think you can be liberal there, and um, you know, getting a GKI low 
And doing things like intermittent fasting can help with that. And also ketone supplementation can lower glucose more and elevate ketones more. So you can supplementally actually shift your GKI with exogenous ketones. And, you know, we did most of our research has been with the ketone ester, but the ketone salts are kind of what I use now because they taste really good. And now they're formulated to be pretty close to a ketone ester. And and, and on that point, because, yeah, I've noticed... um, we, I, to get her into ketosis, I needed the exogenous ketones. Like, I think with the drug combination that she yeah. was on, she was on dexamethasone, which is a steroid that you know obviously puts your blood sugars up up somewhat. I still managed to keep it sort of under control with the diet. But when I added in the exogenous ketones, that's when we actually got into ketosis and we actually started to see some benefits. So I'm I'm very keen on that that part of it. I think even for other people, you know, wanting to start on a keto, you know, a keto diet, um, having those exogenous ketones in extra is going to make the transition easier if you're coming from a high carb sort of standard diet. Um, moving over, it's going to be a heck of a lot easier if you've got some exogenous ketones coming in. But can we just touch on the esters yep. versus the salts and the, the DBHB yeah. versus the DNL and the you know, all of that, because that's a, bit, a little bit confusing, yeah. I think, for people. What is an ester? And they're very expensive esters. So for most people, going to be difficult. Um, and are the, 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 the DBHB, MCT combinations good in your in your Yeah, scenario? good question. Um, so I've used everything and I have everything at yeah. the house, you know, in the lab. Uh, and so you have the DBHB uh, ketone salts, and then you have, uh, well, let's start with MCT. So if you consume MCT, some people call that, you know, exogenous ketone. So the MCTs will be transported to the liver via hepatic portal circulation and not packaged into like chylomicrons, like long chain fats. And then a proportion of them will be converted to ketones. And right. the caprylic triglyceride, the C8, MCT is more ketogenic, right? So that that's a that's a very useful uh, a fat, a ketogenic fat to use. And then the next one down the line would be the ketone salts. So that's beta hydroxybutyrate, which is ionically bound to an electrolyte like sodium, calcium, potassium, magnesium. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with magnesium, you can have GI issues. With potassium. Uh, a ketone salt powder will be hydroscopic. That means it'll like, you know, if it hits humid air, it'll become like a solid brick. Right. Uh, so many of the salts are sodium and like calcium combinations and they, they tend to work. They taste good and they, they work really well elevating ketones. So you have ketone salts that are the D enantiomer and also the ketone salts that are the D and the L enantiomer. Yeah. The D enantiomer, your body makes primarily D beta hydroxybutyrate. And then we have an enzyme, aracimase, that'll make small amounts of the L. We don't know what the L's function is, but the racemic ketone salts that are sold on the market are typically a 50-50 mixture of D and L. We're actually very interested in the L-beta-hydroxybutyrate because some of the, when you consume the L, it can be interconverted. Uh, it, it gets back to uh, D-beta-hydroxybutyrate. It interconverts and breaks down to that. It can also just become acetyl-CoA 
and then be metabolized that way. But what's very interesting to me, and we're studying this now, is that if you consume a 50-50 mixture of D and L, the D gets metabolized really quick for energy, and then the L gets metabolized too, but it sticks around in your blood and your tissues a lot longer mm-hmm. uh, for it to be metabolized. So it's mm-hmm. almost like a sustained release wow. form of ketones. Okay. And most importantly is that both the D and the L have signaling properties, right? So if you consume a racemic mixture, the L sticks around longer to activate uh, the ketone receptor and also epigenetic pathways and also suppress the NLRP3 inflammasome. So you can get a more robust signaling effect from the racemic. Uh, the racemic, the you're delivering a high energy metabolite, the D, and then you have the L and some of that converts to D, but you're also stimulating more of the signaling pathways. So I actually think of the racemic as like the next generation ketones mm. because you are optimizing, you're delivering an energy molecule and also a molecule that's more favorable in activating the signaling pathways. And the epigenetic so, uh, yeah, the and, and most of our research... Yep. And our cancer research was actually with the racemic. So I tend to be a little bit more in favor of the racemic just because our best data has been using the racemic compounds. Mm-hmm. And uh, and now actually the, the cost is about the same for the D and the L, the cost because the demand grew for the D, people think that's better. And it, maybe it could be better for sports, but I'm there's still no data to support that. Right. So uh, I'm, I'm Personally, I use uh, a mix. And I have different products here, but the Keto Start product. Uh, it's oh, yeah. nutrition. Yeah, yeah. Keto yeah. Start. We'll put the link over in the show notes to to you to that. Yeah, and yeah. That, the purity is very high, but I can drink a lot of it and get my ketones high, and it doesn't, you know, give me the runs. <laughs> like many yeah. of the uh, formulations the ketone salts just really, they don't, doesn't sit well in yep. my stomach, but the Keto Star product tastes really good and uh, it's very high purity. Yep. So I've been using that and I've been experimenting with the esters too here and there, but I rarely use the esters. Just, it doesn't taste that good. And I don't think it's like optimal to, sh- just like you don't want big spikes in your glucose. Yep. You don't want big spikes in your ketones, I think the one that we've got is actually a DBHB, so I'm going to have to look into the Keto Start stuff and, and mm-hmm. see um, if that's, you know, with the D and the L. Um, and thanks for, for clear, clarifying that up. Um, just before we wind up, Don, because I know you've, you know, probably got a busy man, got lots to do, lots of studies for sure. Um, I wanted to just t- touch on your, um, your you, some of the extreme stuff that you've done with the diving. And, uh, you know, go away from the cancer sort of stuff. But you, you're a very interesting person, as well as being this incredible science scientist. Um, you were involved with the Nemo project uh, and staying down underwater and um, doing some extreme sort of stuff. You've done things like fasting for seven days and then deadlifted, what was it, 500 pounds or something. Um, you, you seem to excel on, on all areas of the spectrum. So what, what makes you tick and how do you sort of look at this sort of extreme life that you've you've, you've led really because as a you know an extreme athlete or you know my past I'm always interested in, in people that are you know 
pushing the limits the name of the of the, the podcast <laughs> really so yeah, yeah any yeah. comments <laughs> i appreciate that yeah i think it's important to push the limits well i mean i was always interested in fitness and you know working out strength training has been a form of self-medication i guess you could say through yeah. grad school it kept me sane and um you know, kept me out of trouble, I guess, uh, just b- being very in- interested in, in working out and being very meticulous about my diet through the early years probably kept me out of trouble too. A lot of yeah. times I didn't go out with my friends to like the bars or clubs and things like that, just because I needed to wake up early to train or something like that. So that was part of my history. And then it was very uh, exciting to be able to incorporate nutrition back into my research program again, where I was, I was, you know, focused on like drug, drug development and things like that. So I, I think it's, I am most interested in the science if I immerse myself into the science myself. Mm-hmm. So not only researching it in the lab, but testing things out on myself, trying to, the idea of fasting was so far from my mind because I grew up eating like six meals a day, yeah. tons of protein, you know, yeah. things like that. It was counterintuitive and it was very liberating to just basically show, hey, my body can withstand seven days of fasting if I, you know, God forbid, need to, I'm put into that situation. You know, I'm not going to crash and die from hypoglycemia. Your body yeah. knows what to do. And you liberate the resources from adipose tissue and fat, and then you make ketones and actually you feel okay. Uh, You actually feel pretty lucid, you know, and the more you do it, the easier it gets and the more benefits you derive from it if you create a practice around it. So that's what I've uh, experienced. And then, uh, so we do research on cells, animal models, human research in the lab, but then I became a research subject in a space analog mission that trains astronauts in an extreme environment. And occasionally they bring a scientist into these astronaut training simulations. And I had a great opportunity to be on the NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations or NEMO. And then I was on NEMO 22 and my wife was on NEMO 23 in an all-female wow. crew with Samantha Cristoforetti, an Italian European Space Agency astronaut was a commander. My commander for my mission was Shell uh, Lindgren. Mm -hmm. So he had been on the space station for like a half a year. Amazing individual, medical doctor, you know, military background, uh, probably one of the most amazing individuals I've ever met. uh, (laughs) It's crazy. And all the the people at NASA are really just top-notch and fun to work with. So I learned a lot from that. We are still writing publications from the data that we collected. I stayed in a state of ketosis. I used exogenous ketones, and I think it gave me a bit of an edge and safety edge, especially in that extreme environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and able to function well, you know. Um, yeah. And this is the thing. It makes you much more resilient. But, I, you know, it's interesting that you touched on in your earlier life, you know, when you were – because you're a big, strong man, you know, six meals a day, and that's sort of what, you know, everyone thinks you go to the gym and you've got to train X amount of hours and you've got to eat every two hours. I know, like, my brother was like that, you know, every two hours are you going to die, you know, sort of thing. Um, and it, it becomes a very psychological – and even as, a, like, an ultra-endurance athlete, so I've done, you know, extreme long distances all around the, the planet and really hot temperatures and really cold and really high altitudes um and and 
uh, you know, the reason I started running was so I could eat more because I like food, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And and then realizing, hang on a minute, that doesn't work like that. <laughs> you got to actually fuel yourself. Uh, you get away with it as a young a young person, but as you get older, you start to realize, you know, you've actually got to uh, put into your body what you, if you're going to start, you know, really taxing your body, doing those sort of extreme things, then you better be putting in some decent stuff most of the time. And I sort of live by yeah. the 80-20 rule, you know, um, you've got to live a little bit as well and enjoy life. But um, it, it it's certainly uh, an area now I've retired from doing the, the super long distance stuff. Um, but now, you know, the fat ad- adapted athletes are, are, definitely doing well in performance. Um, I had Professor Grant Schofield, who's a, a researcher in, in this whole area in New Zealand and um, trains yeah. a lot of top-level athletes. It's definitely very, very powerful for for performance. And if I'd, you know, like running through something like Death Valley, like I did that a couple of times where you're running, you know, 135 miles and temperatures above 50 degrees, um, you know, it would have been, wonder what I would have been like if I had been fat adapted. If I had been, uh, you know, uh, would have made such a massive distance, or even more importantly, the stuff that I did at altitude in the Himalayas, <clears throat> when you're up at, you know, five to six thousand meters type of thing, where the oxygen's down at yeah. one third of what it is down here, um, and you're running, you know, 140 odd miles, uh, yeah. that would have been really interesting, wouldn't it? Uh, <laughs> instead of having to eat food incredible. constantly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what's really incredible? Yeah, it it was really interesting. Yeah, it would have been it would be interesting for you to study some athletes that are doing those types of things at the extreme end of the Mm -hmm. scale to see what actually happens in their bodies, and um, that would be a, a fascinating thing. You know, one of the funny things that in my ultra marathon running career, which you know was twenty five years long, I was more overweight and puffier when I was doing the super long stuff than I am now that I do mostly gym and high intensity and CrossFit type of workouts and yoga and things like that, you know. Um, So Mm -hmm. it's all counterintuitive to what you think, you know. When you're running miles and miles, it it actually can make you put on weight. So it's not just about calories in and calories out. I remember at one point when I ran through New Zealand for charity, I was running sort of 70-odd kilometres a day. I don't know what that is in miles, but quite a lot. Um, and I put on weight and I was like, what the heck is going on here? You know, and that must be because of the distress that you're putting your body through in the emergency, I don't know, hormonal things probably. Um, but it's interesting to, to, yeah, to, to, to understand the, 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 what happens to the human body in extreme physiological situations, whether that's hyperbaric altitude, cold, hot, uh, you know, not eating, not drinking, um, you know, yeah. those sorts of things. Eh? It would be fascinating to have a discussion around all of that one day. <laughs> but, um, yeah. yeah, my colleagues are studying hypoxia, you know, and then administering ketones and then doing cognitive and performance functioning tests. So we have ongoing research with that. My collaborators are doing that right now. Wow. And we have a couple projects going and stay tuned. A couple things should be published pretty soon. But uh, it's very interesting because if you administer glucose and carbohydrates in a hypoxic environment, it does not enhance performance. Like the, there's no wow. performance benefit. Uh, you know, there, there's a mild benefit, you know, under AMIT. 
So, uh, and there's evidence that there's an inhibition of the glycolytic pathway of pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. So there's a good scientific rationale for administering ketones in uh, at altitude or hypoxic environment. So uh, there's ongoing research that identified the scientific rationale for that, and that research is ongoing right now. So it'd be wow. very interesting to see the results yeah. of this, which should be published. So, I mean, there's multiple studies and multiple labs, so it's good that different labs are studying this, and we can compare and see what protocols would be optimal for the hypoxic environment. Wow, because when we were doing it for stuff at altitude, it was like, eat more carbs, eat more carbs, eat more carbs. And, yep, you know, yep. you did feel you knew you would lose weight when you're at altitude. Um, yeah, that's right. Flat yeah. stick. So the ketones would have been a, probably a much more beneficial, you know, looking back and going, mm-hmm. yeah, gosh, it would have been interesting to see if you performed a lot better if you'd had, had that sort of uh, protocol rather than, you know, what mm-hmm. I did, which was eat everything. <laughs> so did you take... I was wondering if you took Diamox or acetazolamide. Did you take the altitude drug at that? No, no you never took No, uh-huh. no, no, didn't yeah. take any of those um, types of things. Um, I do remember taking um, Tramadol once in, in one of the Himalayan races, which for pain, my back had gone, oh, wow, that combined with a high altitude was a bad combination. I went, but psycho you know um so you gotta be very careful what you what you do put in your body up at those sort of heights because i think you know it's much more stronger but um yeah and and your wife is very fascinating too she's doing all of this sorts of stuff as well and um it'd be fascinating yeah she's actually on uh uh, well, I can't actually say what, what she's doing right now. It's like a top secret. It's a DARPA DARPA mission thing. Wow. But uh, but I can say she's in Hawaii and she's on top of a of a big mountain in Hawaii doing some uh, space relevant research. You wow. know, in, in that area. I can't mention the, you know kind of what it is, but uh, but I think in time, you know, they'll the embargo will be lifted and she'll be able to talk about that. So she, oh, she, amazing. she actually does more research than I do. She just stayed a little bit more low key from being a public <laughs> figure, but uh, yeah. <laughs> she would be uh, sounds an absolutely fascinating lady too. And part of that, she did that Nemo thing as well. That's just you know, I thought it was fascinating yeah. that it was an all all woman crew, which was really 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 cool. Um, to yeah, see, yeah, yeah. That's really fascinating. Dom, you've been absolutely so gracious with your time. Um, thank you so much for all the research that you do. It is making a difference in the world and it's helping little people like me and mum. So um, please keep going and keep that research coming. It's just it's, it's super critical on so many levels. So really, really grateful for you and, and your work. So thanks for hanging out today. I really appreciate being on, Lisa, and for giving me this platform to talk about the research and for all the information, all the other podcasts, you know, info that you put out there. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Dom. And um, we will put all the links, any any particular place that you would like people to go to uh, hang out with you, to learn more from you, read your blogs, et cetera. Yeah, ketonutrition.org, ketonutrition.org. We have a newsletter, sign up for that. We have a blog about two times a month. We put out a blog on that, on a, on a topic. And uh, yeah, so just go there. We have resources on there. Absolutely. And uh, you can contact me through there. Oh, wonderful. Thanks very much, Dom. Thank you, Lisa. 
That's it this week for Pushing the Limits. Be sure to rate, review and share with your friends. And head over and visit Lisa and her team at lisatarmaty.com.